All right. Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone. Let's go ahead and get started with Sunday School. All right. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and open your word. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, as we walk through Galatians, that uh, we would uh, hear the word and apply it to our lives and be transformed by it. Uh, that I pray that we would not simply hear the word and, uh, and just say, oh, that's nice, and, and not uh, really consider um, what this means for our lives. Um, we thank you for this word and thank you for the opportunity that we have. Um, thank you for Christ and uh, him coming to buy uh, a redemption for us sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we'll be in Galatians 3, uh, chapter 15, uh, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 22. So you can go ahead and start to turn there. Uh, this passage deals with the relationship of the law and the promises of God. Uh, throughout Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel against the addition of works, particularly the work of circumcision, as a necessity for salvation. Paul's main point uh, throughout the book is that Justification is by faith, not circumcision. Starting in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul begins to use the example of Abraham and how Abraham was justified by faith. Paul's whole effort is to show that the Galatians must not rely on the law for salvation. Then in verses uh, 7 through 14 of chapter 3, Paul establishes that those who are saved are saved by faith, and Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by taking the penalty of the law upon himself. And in our passage this morning, Paul is dealing with the relationship of the Mosaic law uh, and the promises that the Lord gave to Abraham. So now, let's read Galatians 3, verses 15 through 22. I'll be reading from the ESV, and uh, same for any other uh, quotations throughout. So Galatians 3, 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, 
it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so the background here is that Paul's opponents uh, are seeking to elevate the law, uh, in particular circumcision, as a means of justification or at least as a necessary add-on to Christ's work. And there's a lot of things that are wrong with that idea. But one of the things that's wrong with that is it requires an incorrect view of the law and the promises. And as we go through this passage, there's four main things that I want to highlight. Um, And those four points are uh, the promises are pointing forward to Christ. That's the first one. Second, salvation is by promise, not law. Third, the law points to the need for salvation. And fourth, the law and the promise work together. So those are the main points I'll be uh, coming back to as we walk through the text. Uh, One other point of background before we start walking through this morning's text. Uh, Here in this passage, Paul is talking about the promises and the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. So I think it would be helpful for us to understand what these promises are. So the Lord gave uh, promises to Abraham on several different occasions. Uh, As I went through Genesis, um, you can find the Lord giving uh, promises of some sort to Abraham uh, in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, chapter 13, 14 through 17, chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 21, chapter 17, 1 through 14, uh, and chapter 22, uh, verses 16 through 18. Uh, And then the promises uh, that were given to Abraham are also restated. Uh, They're given to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, 2 through 5, and then they're also restated and given to Jacob in Genesis 28, uh, 13 through 15. So uh, these promises are given not just in one occasion, they're, uh, they're given and then they're restated in some form or another uh, multiple times. Uh, really, to, to understand it, uh, it would be good for you in your own time to start in Genesis 12 and read the whole way through to Genesis 30. But uh, for our purposes today and just generally, the two uh, most important are 
Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and Genesis 15, 1 through 21. So yes, go ahead and turn to uh, Genesis 12. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is God's initial call of Abram, uh, Abram at the time, later Abraham, uh, and uh, here there's the promise of a land to possess, uh, a blessing, and that through him the nations will be blessed. The second passage, which I won't read all of, uh, is Genesis 15, 1 through 21. There's a lot going on in that passage. Um, uh, in verse... Uh, so... Uh, the Lord promises uh, Abram an offspring. Um, Abram believes, and that belief is counted as righteousness. Then uh, God goes and makes a covenant with Abram. And under that covenant, the interesting thing about the covenant is uh, God comes and it, it's the covenant is made to Abram, but God is the only one with obligations to fulfill under that covenant. So, uh, so in back in Galatians, when Paul is talking about the promises to Abraham, I would take it that he is speaking especially of the promise that through Abraham all nations will be blessed. So that's from Genesis 12 uh, and the covenant of Genesis 15. Uh, and I say that because uh, Paul has just mentioned the promise of blessing to the nations uh, in Galatians 3, verse 8. Um, he mentions that uh, the gospel was preached before him to Abraham, saying, and you, all nations, shall be blessed. Uh, and then also in verse 14, um, Paul mentions the blessing of Abraham. So uh, so that's why I think he's uh, referring to Genesis 12, but also because of the language of covenant and offspring, uh, which Paul uses in verses 15 through 17, um, that lines up very much with Genesis 15. So, uh, so when Paul is speaking of the promises, and the covenant in this passage, these are the particular promises which he is focused on. So now turning to our passage for this morning of Galatians 3. So looking, uh, first of all, at verse 15, here Paul is explaining how covenants work. Um, once a covenant has been made, uh, even a man-made covenant, uh, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
once the covenant is made, cannot be changed. In our day and time, we are not very accustomed to thinking in terms of covenant. Um, For most uh, situations we have, if we no longer like the arrangement or the agreement we've entered into, there are generally options for getting out of it without too much trouble. Really, the best remaining example that we have of a covenant is that of marriage um, when it's rightly understood. Um, Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. Um, Now, if one or both parties uh, decide to break that covenant, um, that doesn't uh, mean that the covenant uh, simply goes away or that just means that they're in violation of the covenant. Uh, Or put another way, the validity of a covenant is not dependent on uh, how the the present desires of those that are bound by the covenant. So, um, so this is how covenants work. Once you uh, have made a covenant, you can't modify it or annul it. And Paul is going to take that and apply it to the covenant that the Lord made to Abraham. So, uh, then verse sixteen. Here, Paul shows that Christ is the offspring of Abraham the one to whom the promise was given. The promises to Abraham included not only Isaac and the nation, but Christ as well. This is because uh, Christ is the offspring of the promises to Abram. Back in verse 8, we see that the gospel is preached to Abraham through the promise of blessing to the nations. That blessing uh, to the nations would come about through Christ. Thus, by believing the promise of blessing to the nations uh, and that his offspring would be uh, as the stars of the sky, Abraham was placing his faith in Christ in a way, though the full reality of Christ and his coming were not yet revealed. So the promises were pointing forward to Christ And thus, by faith in the promise, Abraham was saved. The promise wasn't pointing forward to the law or to circumcision. It wasn't through those things that the blessings to the nations would come. Rather, the promised blessing was to come through Christ. So, the the promises to Abraham were pointing forward to Christ. That's uh, point number one. Uh, The promises to Abraham were pointing forward to Christ and the salvation that he accomplished. And as an aside here, note how Paul is making this argument uh, off the tense of a word. Paul is taking the details of Scripture seriously um, all of Scripture is God's word, even down to the tense of a word, and we should not simply disregard the details of Scripture, even if they present a challenge for us to understand. Now, turning to verses 17 and 18. So, uh, so the law came after 
the covenant had been given to Abraham. And uh, so Paul, in addressing the uh, those who would oppose him, uh, because Abraham was saved by faith, uh, which Paul has already established, one objection that might be raised by his opponents is, well, uh, yes, Abraham was saved by faith, but the law changes things. Once the law came, men uh, were saved by the law. But uh, here Paul is showing that the coming of the law doesn't change the promise. That's simply not how covenants work, as Paul established back in verse 15. God made the covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was not revoked. The law was given, and with it, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. But the regulations of the law and the blessings and curses of it do not modify the already established covenant. Thus, when uh, Israel came out of Egypt and possessed the land, this was according to the promises. The inheritance that Israel received uh, had been promised to Abraham. So it did not become because of their obedience to the law. And this is very evident if you go back and read the story of the Exodus. Throughout uh, the book of Exodus and all the way through uh, to Joshua, we see that it is in spite of Israel's failings that they possess the inheritance of the land, not because of their adherence to the law. Because of Israel's rebellion, they spent 40 years in the desert, and an entire generation perished there. And further, uh, if the law were the means by which God gave the inheritance, then those blessings could not also be given by the promises. Something can't be both earned and be a gift. The law and the covenant promises are two different things. One is reliant uh, on God alone. That's the promise. The other is a uh, a bilateral agreement, uh, and that's the law. So the law is obey, and you will be blessed. Disobey, uh, and you will be cursed, or, or you will perish. And the implication is that just as Abraham was saved by faith in God, when he was given the promises, so those after him who had the law were also saved by faith. So uh, so here's the logic. The covenant promises were given to Abraham. Abraham believed God when he gave the promises. Then the promises don't go away when the law comes. So those that uh, were saved after the law were saved by promise, just as Abraham was. So that's the second point, that salvation is by promise, not the law. And that doesn't change whether you're talking about Abraham or you're talking about uh, those that came after the law was given. 
So then focusing on verse 19, here Paul is dealing with a different objection. Why was the law given? Uh, In relation to God's covenant promises to Abraham, the law then kind of seems a bit lousy, um, primarily because in order to receive blessing, it requires men to live righteously, which uh, by themselves, of course, is impossible. So what is the proper purpose of the law, as Paul is arguing for? So verse 19 the law was added because of transgressions. The law is, is external to man, but uh, sin flows out of man. So the law doesn't change anything about you or I, but what it does do is point out sin. To, it, it points out transgression. The law destroys any serious notion that you or I are good, and anyone that knows the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law and looks at his own life honestly will be confronted with the fact that he has transgressed the law. And under the Mosaic law, there's no uh, lasting atonement for sin. So thus, the, the, the law condemns man. And the law did this, this exposing of of sin or transgression uh, until the offspring would come. The law was not meant as a complete and final answer to the question of man's sin. It was pointing to something greater, salvation from sin. It was awaiting the coming of the offspring, the offspring who is Christ. Thus, the law was awaiting the fulfillment of the promise of the offspring, and through that offspring, the blessing of the nations. So the law exposed sin until Christ, uh, who was the fulfillment of the promise, came. And by pointing out man's sin, the law is showing the need for salvation. So thus that's the the third point uh, uh, here that Paul's giving, the, the law is pointing to the need for salvation, to our need of salvation. Then at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20, Paul brings up another point uh, about the law, and that's the manner in which the law was instated. Uh, And the way in which it was instated is very different from the way the promises were given. The promises were given by God speaking directly with Abraham. But the law was given through an intermediary, uh, who is Moses, uh, and then also the angels were involved. So Moses was the one who mediated between Israel and God. And through Moses, the law was given while the promises were given directly from God to Abraham. There wasn't anyone else involved. But with the law, there were others involved, uh, both the intermediary, who was Moses, and the angels. And 
this applies not just to how it was instantiated, but its practice throughout. The Mosaic system was one of intermediaries. Uh, first, it was Moses uh, going between the people and God. And then after that, it was the priests who delivered sacrifices for the people. In the Mosaic system, there's no direct interaction between uh, the people and the Lord. When God dealt with Abraham, uh, he spoke to him directly without an intermediary. So this, this is another area in which the promises uh, are superior to the law because the promises were given directly, whereas the, uh, the law was given through an intermediary. So then, uh, verse 21. The, the next objection uh, that Paul is dealing with here is that if what Paul were saying is true, then the law and the promises would be working against one another. Uh, if the law is binding men in sin and the promise is pointing to salvation in the coming offspring, uh, then aren't these two things working against one another? Paul's answer, no, certainly not. It's very clear, very emphatic that that is simply not the case. Uh, The exposing of sin that the law does is not contrary to the promises because the promises pointed forward uh, to Christ who accomplished salvation. And the law is pointing to the need for salvation. If the law could have provided justification, then there would have been no need for Christ to uh, humble himself, to come and die. The cost of salvation uh, in Christ was immensely great. It required Christ to come and die. If there were some law uh, or some set of things that you could follow, and just to use the example of Islam, uh, in Islam, the some of the pillars of Islam are praying five prayers a day, uh, fasting for a month each year, uh, a pilgrim, a pilgrimage, uh, and giving to the poor. Um, so, if there were some such uh, set of things that we could do, um, either uh, from the Mosaic Law or uh, or something else, if there were something like that that could give righteousness then why would Christ come and die? Either Christ's salvation is sufficient, uh, which it is, and any attempt to add to his work is absolute folly, which it is, or uh, Christ coming and dying on the cross cross was unnecessary. But the law makes clear that all have fallen short of, of the standard of righteousness. The problem is that those things can't give life. And note what Paul says here. The law can't give life. The real problem is for man in sin is that he is spiritually dead. Thus, without Christ, the law only bind, the law is only a prison which binds sinful men in condemnation but it is by the promise that Christ came. 
Uh, thus, for those that lived before Christ, uh, when they had faith, they had faith in the promise that was not yet fulfilled. Uh, and as we stand on the other side of the cross, we place our faith in Christ as the fulfillment of the promises. So both the law and the, the promises are working toward the same goal, which is to bring men to salvation uh, in uh, perhaps oversimplified terms. You might think of this as supply and demand. The promises are pointing to uh, Christ and our salvation. Um, and even before the promises were fulfilled, uh, men were saved by faith in the promise. And the law is showing the need for salvation by uncovering man's sin and bringing condemnation. If the law could have provided the full and total atonement which was needed, then there would be no reason for Christ to come. If the atonement and positive righteousness that Christ brought, that Christ bought on the cross was already available through the law, then Christ would not have come. But there is no such means of atonement or righteousness uh, available under the law. And so the situation of, a, uh, of an Israelite or a believer before Christ uh, is like this. The law condemns you, uh, and you see your need of a better atonement than what the law and the sacrificial system uh, can give. But there are the promises of the one who will come and bring salvation. And so uh, by faith in that promise, you are saved, just like Abraham was. So thus, the law and the promises are not contrary to one another, but rather they come hand in hand uh, to bring men to salvation. The law exposes sin and the promises uh, point to the offspring who would come. Uh, They're working together. And so that's the fourth point, that the promises uh, and the law work together to bring men to faith. Um, So uh, in closing, uh, from this passage we see that First of all, the promises uh, we're pointing to or they're foreshadowing Christ. The promises were given to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. And then second, salvation is by promise, not law. Abraham was saved by faith in the promise and was given the covenant, and the coming of the law did not change that. Third, the Law points to the need for salvation. It does, it does this by exposing uh, man's sin uh, with God's standard of righteousness, a standard of which we all fall short of. Fourth, the law and the promises are working together. While the law points out our sin uh, and thus our need for salvation, the promises point forward to the one who brought redemption for our sin once and for all. Let's pray.
Father, uh, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the salvation that we have in Christ. Um, I thank you that uh, in Christ we are not under the curse of the law, but we have been um, set free, that we uh, have the redemption of Christ, and thus um, we are brought near uh, into the body of Christ, into um, the church, the the called out ones who uh, who have received the wonderful grace and redemption of Christ. I, I thank you for this truth and um, pray that you would be with the rest of our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen.